Today's strange story is not for the weak at heart. It's about a left-handed assassin who you've probably never heard of. It is gruesome, it is graphic, and it has stumped many a Bible reader. Why was this strange story even included in the Bible in the first place? Now, from a distance, it's nice to think of the Bible as a book of good and moral teaching, a rule book of sorts for, for living a life pleasing to God. But the Bible is so much more than that. It records the history of God's activity and work here on earth. It chronicles the ways that sinful humanity has rejected God's good plans and, and God's ultimate grace in welcoming, welcoming us back. But the Bible it's full of songs of poetry and historical documentation, and letters to friends, and even prophecy. But all throughout the Bible, there is this common thread. There is this epic story of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, and how God works in and through them to bring about blessing to the entire world. So today, we're going to focus on just one strange story that comes from the Bible, recorded in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges describes the nation of Israel in one of its darkest times that lasted for about 350 years. It was a time of total moral decay and lawlessness. Now, at this time, the nation of Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and they were living free in the promised land. But their newfound freedom was spoiled by their disobedience to God's commands. So great leaders or, or champions called judges would lead the nation of Israel during this time of lawlessness. It was in between the time of Moses and Joshua all the way until they would finally anoint Saul as their first king. Now, when you hear the word judge, don't think of this. Okay, don't think of Judge Judy. Israel's judges were not so much about governing the courts as they were military leaders. There are some famous stories of some of these judges. One judge, Gideon, he conquered the entire Midianite army with only 300 men. Another judge, Samson, he slayed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But there's this one judge that rarely gets talked about. And this judge would become Israel's savior and defender for 80 years. His name is Ehud. Now, Ehud is remembered not for his military tactics or his faith in God or his great strength, but he's remembered for his shrewdness, his deceit, and his stealth because Ehud was an assassin. So before we jump into this strange story, let me set the scene. After Moses, who was leading the nation of Israel, after he died, Joshua took over and they conquered the walled city of Jericho and he led the nation of Israel into the promised land. But then Joshua died and the people of Israel began to turn their backs on God and his good ways. The book of Judges ominously sums it up in this way in Judges chapter 17. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, it was a dark time in the history of the nation of Israel. All the people just did as they wanted. It was a time of moral chaos. They began to serve other idols and worship other gods. They intermarried with other nations. They had forgotten how God had saved them and led them into their new home. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
But even though they had turned their back on God, God never turned his back on them. So every so often, God would raise up a judge to lead Israel into a time of peace and back to following his commandments. But sadly, this time of peace, it would not last. Israel refused to listen to God and like a dog returns to its vomit, so Israel would return to its sin. And this is exactly where we pick up today's strange story. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of all of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And Israel served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the saddest phrase of this whole passage was the very first two words we read. Once again. Once again. The, the cyclical nature of the nation of Israel, it went something like this. Israel turns their back on God, and then God allows a nation to oppress them. And then Israel calls out to God for help. And then God raises up a redeemer and so on and so forth. They turn their back on God. God allows a nation to uh, take them over. And then they cry out to God for help. And then God sends them a redeemer. And it would go on and on and on. And not just a cycle like this. It was, it was more of a downward spiral like this. And this is the cycle that Ahud was born into. This was the downward spiral that Ahud tried to fight against. But Israel could just not stay away from its sin. They kept turning to the godless culture around them. Rather than finding refuge in God, they would find refuge in the pleasures of this world and they would ignore God's commands time and time again. And this time, God disciplined them by allowing a foreign nation not only to take them over, but the king of Moab, King Eglon, he set up his military base in Jericho for 18 years. Now, Moab conquering Jericho was a big deal because Jericho was not only a strategic stronghold, but it held a ton of significance for the nation of Israel as well. Jericho was the very first city that the nation of Israel conquered on their way into the promised land. Maybe you know the story. Joshua marched the people around the great walled city of Jericho. They shouted and they yelled and the walls came a-tumbling down. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. So here we are, about a hundred years after that, and now Jericho is lost. But the symbolism of that moment would not have been lost on the nation of Israel. They were very well aware of the mess they had gotten themselves into by not obeying God and his commands. So, God raises up another champion, another judge to rescue Israel from its latest oppressor. Enter Ehud. Now, Ehud was left-handed and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which ironically means son of my right hand. Now, being left-handed was not common at all. 
and it was seen as a handicap. Yet God chose Ehud, the lefty, to make things right. Ehud had this unique role in the nation of Israel. He was chosen as one of the people who was to deliver a tribute to King Eglon. See, the nation of Israel was required to bring King Eglon a a portion of fresh foods and rich spices and gold and money as tribute to the king, which is kind of funny because one of the many disobedient things that the nation of Israel was doing was not tithing to the Lord. See, which is one of the things that even led to them being oppressed by another nation, where King Eglon What did he do? He made them tithe, but not to God, to himself. So rather than bringing their tithe to God, the nation of Israel is now bringing their tithe to evil King Eglon. And Ehud, it was one of the men chosen to this task of bringing a tribute to the king. Ehud, he was courageous. Ehud, he was clever. And Ehud, he came up with a secret plan to assassinate the wicked King Eglon. Ehud made a special double-edged dagger that was one foot long. Now, I had my son help me make this so you could really visualize what a one foot long dagger would actually look like. So, since he was left-handed, what he did was he was going to strap his one foot dagger to his right thigh and keep it hidden under his clothes. See, the plan was, since his, his dagger would be on his right thigh under his clothes, when King Eglon's guards came and searched him, they would look on his left side to see if he had a weapon because all right-handed warriors kept their sword and their weapon on their left side. But Ehud, since he's left-handed, kept his dagger on his right side. And so he would be able to slip by the guards with his weapon uh, on his thigh and he would be undetected and he would be able to slay King Egalon. Okay, that's the plan. So the day of the tribute was here. It would have been a grand affair. Lots of people involved, large parades of fine linen and money and spices and food. Oh, the food, a feast only fit for a king. Now, We don't know a whole lot about King Eglon, but one thing we are absolutely sure of is this. The Bible makes it very clear. He was fat, like really fat. The name Eglon actually means cow. Like you can't make this stuff up. Now, calling someone fat today, I get it. It's a no-go. It's such bad taste and it's incredibly rude. So I looked up the original Hebrew word that's been translated into English that the Bible uses when it refers to King Eglon as fat. And the literal translation is that he was plenteous, okay? (laughs) Plenteous. So King Eglon wasn't fat, he was plenteous. Very, very plenteous. Now, one of the reasons he was so plenteous is that he would gorge himself on the tributes brought to him. So, Ehud. And all of the men, they brought this tribute to King Eglon. Now, I don't know if, if the moment just wasn't right or, or if Ehud just didn't have the chance to get to Eglon to, to slay him, but Ehud's chances for murder seemed to be slipping away. It appeared that, that Ehud had run out of time and he, along with all the others who carried up the tribute to, to the king, now left Eglon's palace 
and Eglon was still alive. But whether it was newfound courage or the right opportunity, or perhaps it was the plan all along, but Ehud turned back by himself, went back to King Eglon, and he said, King Eglon, I have a secret for you. I have a secret for you. Now, this was like the very first clickbait ever, okay? You, you know when you get those ads online and it's something outlandish, this big flashy title or a, or a flashy picture, and it, it's baiting you to click on it. Clickbait, right? Only when you do click on it, you find out it's not nearly as good as advertised, <laughs> okay? This is essentially what Ehud is trying, and it worked. King Eglon, I have a secret for you. Now, Eglon, full of his tribute feast and full of his arrogance, he, he sends everyone away and he calls Ehud to him so he and only he can hear this secret message. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And King Eglon, he rose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand he pulled the dagger that was strapped to his right thigh and he plunged it into the belly of the king. The dagger went in so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. Ehud, he then locked the doors to the room. He slipped out onto the balcony and escaped from the palace undetected. Much like he snuck the dagger into the palace in a stealthy way, he was able to sneak out completely unnoticed. Eglon's servants didn't dare disturb the king since the doors were locked. He was in there for such a long time, they thought he was just using the toilet. But finally, so much time had passed that they'd become concerned. They, they went and got a key. They let themselves in only to find their king dead with a dagger in his belly. Meanwhile, Ehud had rallied the armies of Israel and told them about the death of Eglon. Let's pick it up in 29. They attacked the Moabites and they killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day and there was peace in the land for 80 years. So what lessons can we glean from this incredible and this, and this graphic story? There's two quick takeaways that I want to learn from Ehud and Eglon. The first is this. God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. He uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. Now, all throughout scripture, God continues to use these upside down principles. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, brothers and sisters, Think of, what, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. See, the truth is, God chooses people we would never choose. God uses people that we would never use. God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. Now, Ehud was a lefty. How many people watching today 
are left-handed out there. Yeah? Apparently, about one in 10 people are left-handed. Now, in the ancient world, being left-handed was thought as less than ideal. Okay, it was an inferior trait. Ehud being left-handed would have been seen as a handicapped. And the fact that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin, it makes it all the better because Benjamin means son of my right hand. And in the ancient world, the right hand was associated with strength and power and righteousness. In Exodus 15, 6, it says, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In Psalm 98, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. And not only was the right hand associated with power, but it was associated with honor as well. See, sitting at someone's right hand was a seat of honor and importance. In Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, the right was good and the left, it was lesser, it was dirty, it was unholy. And most of history did not share our enlightened senses of either lefty or righty is okay, okay? And so for God to choose something that was seen as foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the so-called wise is God using the unlikely to do the unexpected. See, God made Ehud a hero, not despite his handicap, but rather because of his handicap. God didn't make Ehud just work around his handicap. God used his handicap to bring about his justice. It was only because that he was left-handed, that he was able to sneak a dagger in on his right thigh. I love the way the message translation puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose the nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. See, oftentimes we're tempted to see things as a minus but God sees them as a plus. Maybe you're watching today and and you need to hear this. Somebody needs to hear this today. What you are willing to disqualify yourself over may be the exact reason God qualifies you for his work. What, What you may be using as an excuse for your inaction, God may be shaping for your victory. Okay, so the first lesson that we can learn from today's strange story is simply this. God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. The second lesson that we can glean from Ehud and Eglon is this. God has a better plan. God has a better plan. Isaiah 55 proclaims, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has a better plan. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read scripture, I'm tempted to write myself into the story. Maybe you're like me and you think, well, who would I be in this story? So I think to myself, who would I be in this story? Well, 
course, obviously, I'd be Ehud. I can identify with being frustrated by the evils of this world and confidently standing up for what is right. Except that's, that's not why this story was included in the Bible. That's not the lesson that it's teaching, nor should it be what I take away from this at all. You see, I'm not Ehud. Jesus is. See, Jesus sets us free from the power of evil. As one author puts it, no left-handed savior can break us free from the tyranny of sin, but there is one with nailed, scarred hands who can and who does. You see, Ehud is foreshadowing Jesus. Ehud is foreshadowing a day when Jesus is going to come and conquer the world, not by taking it by force, but by laying down his life. Ehud is foreshadowing a day when when Jesus would release people from their bondage, not for 80 years, but for once and for all. Ehud is foreshadowing a day when Jesus was coming and he would set the world free, not from the evil power of a king, but from the evil power of sin. And this story of Ehud, it reminds us that, that God has a better plan. That God has a better plan. So, I think back to this story, and if I'm anyone in this story, perhaps I'm Eglon, indulging myself in the ways of this world, thinking that easy street is the road to happiness. Here I am living fat and happy, but only temporarily until God calls my number, until I breathe my last breath, and I have to give an account of all of my deeds, all of my words, and all of my actions. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. Many people watching this today, you know the temptations of Easy Street. Easy Street is the path of least resistance. Easy Street means you go along with the flow of culture around you. On Easy Street, the end justifies the means. On Easy Street, you only receive temporary gain, but have no lasting joy. In fact, about a thousand years after Ehud and Eglon, the Apostle Paul, a leader in the early church, he picks up on the same theme as he talks about people who are continually rejecting God's good commands for something easier. Listen to what he writes. He says, all they want is easy street. They hate Christ's cross. But easy street is a dead-end street. Those who live there make their bellies their God and belches are their praise. All they can think of is their appetites. My prayer today is that like Eglon, our bellies don't become our God. That our appetites don't rule us. Because the thing about appetites is this, they grow when you feed them. They grow when you feed them. So let me ask you, what appetite are you feeding? What appetite are you growing? Do you have an appetite for God and his good commands? Or are you feeding the cravings of sin and the pleasures of this world? Easy street is a dead end street. So learn the lesson from Ehud and Eglon. God has a better plan. God has a better plan. Today, be reminded, no matter what you are facing, God has a better plan. 
And that brings me to the big idea for today. The one sentence that sums up today's teaching. It's simply this. Our circumstances will never be bigger than our Savior. Amen? Our circumstances will never be bigger than our Savior. Now, this was true for the nation of Israel. They were caught in this cycle of sin. Remember the downward spiral, but God did not abandon them. God pursued them. Even in the midst of their sin, he sent a champion to set them free. Their circumstances were never bigger than their Savior. This was also true of Ehud, right? His apparent handicap didn't stop him from being used by God to accomplish the task that he was called to. Left-handed, mute, lame, blind, it wouldn't matter. God always accomplishes his task. Ehud's circumstances would never be bigger than his Savior. And this is also true of us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you cannot fail your way out of God's love. You cannot sin your way out of God's grace. Our circumstances will never be bigger than our Savior. Today, no matter the personal pain or turmoil you may be facing, God wants to redeem you. He wants to save you. He wants to set you free. He wants to redeem your past, restore your present, and reassure your future. Because your circumstances will never be bigger than your Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, today, we thank you for being our Savior. We thank you for wanting to redeem us. So many of us, we know what it means to, to walk down easy street, to let the, the pleasures of this world consume us. But for many of us, God, our happiness has turned to mourning. Jesus, right now, we pray that you would redeem us, that you would come live within us and make the old new. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come alive within us and teach us what it means to live for you. Jesus, from this moment forward, I declare, I want to be a child of God. Maybe you're watching today and you've never made a commitment to Jesus before. Would you pray this with me? Would you join me in prayer? Agree with me as I, as I pray. Let my words be your words as we close. Jesus, I know I've lived a life apart from your design. I've walked away from you. I have in me what the Bible calls sin. My life has missed the mark. But God, today I choose to believe you can redeem me. You can redeem my past. You can redeem my sin. So Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, dwell within me. Come alive within me and help me live a life that you've designed. Help me experience your purest love imaginable from this day forward. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, the best advice I could give you is to text the number on the screen. We have a pastor standing by and we would love to give you your next best step in a real relationship with the God of the universe. Thank you for joining us today at Broadway Church and we'll see you guys next week.